Father, we thank you for this time to look at your word and to see what happened in those early days after Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended to heaven and before he sent the Holy Spirit before the birth of your church, which we're part of today. Help us to see from this what you are saying to us in our lives today and in our world in the 21st century. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, attend to your own oxygen mask before you try and help others with theirs. Is that a piece of advice you are familiar with, that you've heard? Um, with the pandemic and everything else, I think it's a while that I personally have been on the plane, and I imagine it may be for some, but I believe it is the sort of advice you may hear still from uh, when you get on the plane. Uh, it's also a piece of advice that's often used as a metaphor for kind of caring for yourself before you care for others. In other words, ensuring that you're not neglecting uh, your own needs and so on, and that's okay as far as it goes. But this morning, what we're going to see in this passage that we heard from Acts, uh, we're going to think about it in a more corporate way. Because there's a sense in which what we're seeing here is that before God's people are ready to get on with the mission that they're about to be, well, they have been given and they're about to be equipped for by the Holy Spirit coming in chapter 2, before they are ready to do that, they need to ensure that all is in order at home, as it were. And that's the same for us. Not, not so much at home in the sense of our individual homes and households, but in the home of the family of God. Ensure that all is in order at home before seeking to reach out to the world. The book of Acts is very outward focused. We saw last time the big theme verse in the book. Uh, chapter 1, verse 8. This is a verse we'll keep returning to. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that is what we're going to see in the chapters to come. But what happens next after Jesus has said these words to them is that he goes up to heaven. And we heard a brief summary of that at the end of the first reading that we heard from, from uh, Luke's gospel. Remember, Acts is kind of Luke part two. So you've got Luke's Gospel, and in Luke, the same author, and he begins verse one, chapter 1, verse 1, in my former book, Theophilus, who he addressed at the beginning of Luke's Gospel 2. Um, so this is, this is kind of Luke part 2, and there's a bit of overlap between the end of Luke's Gospel and the beginning of Acts as he re recounts again what happened when Jesus went up to heaven. And that's verses 9 to 11, just before the reading that we heard. But Jesus has gone... And they know that kind of next on the list after Jesus has gone is what's expected to happen is that the Holy Spirit will come. That's what they've been told. And what's the Spirit going to do? He's going to equip them for making Jesus known. And, and that is what happens at the beginning of chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes and we'll see that next time. And you might think we could go straight there and just hear about that. But first, before we can get to that outward focus, there is then this business at home to attend to, as it were. The oxygen mask needs to go on at home first. They need to sort out the fact that towards the end of Jesus' ministry, the 12 that were so key to Jesus and, and followed him and were with him all the time, the 12 became 11. 
And the substance of the, the reading that we heard and that we're going to focus on is how they ended up picking Matthias to go in the place of Judas. Now, why does that matter? Why do we need to know this in the 21st century in London? the intricate details of how they sorted out the replacements. Well, there's a really important principle that we need to keep in mind as we read this book of Acts. And it works, in fact, for any of the books of the Bible, which are primarily what we call narrative, or or, or the story of what happened. Some some books are kind of story, some are letters, giving more kind of directive, this is what you need to do. But some books like this are just saying, this is what happened. Now, how are we to read these kinds of books Well, the principle is that description is not prescription. Description is not prescription. The book of Acts has a lot of description. Luke describes the events in a lot of detail. But the point is, this is not here, first of all, to give us a kind of manual on how to run a great church, for example. This is here, first of all, it's not that it has nothing to say to us, but it's here, first of all, to describe what happened at a crucial moment in the history of God's people. This is a turning point. This is a one-off moment, not a moment that gets repeated through successive generations when the church was born. And the point for us is to understand that if we're Christians, this is our family history. This is where we came from. This is how it started. How it started is not always the same as how it goes on. You think about that, it's true in lots of things, isn't it? It's like building a house. You know, the top of the house is not the same as the foundation, is it? It's the same building, but different parts of the building look different. The top of the house needs different materials. But without the foundation, the whole thing falls down. So what we've got here is the foundation that we need to understand in order then later to be able to understand what our place higher up the building, as it were, is. So that's how we need to read these chapters. We need to know, did this church, which we're part of now, if we're Christians, if we're trusting in Jesus, we are part of this church which began here. Church meaning not building, but people. Did, it, did this thing that we're part of, did it begin with truth or lies? Are we standing on a solid foundation? Now, if all this is new to you and you wouldn't call yourself a a Christian, I guess you might be asking as you look around at the church today, and remember church, you know, billions of people around the world, when you look at that movement, you might ask, well, is this a massive fairy tale fantasy all built on deception and hearsay, or is there something deeper going on? So do you see, understanding the foundation matters for understanding what's going on in our lives today. That's why we need to to look at this. And for God's people then, what they needed to realise was that before they could start reaching out, they needed to have their own house in order. They needed to address these internal issues that had arisen before they could look outwards. And God gave them a way to do that before the Holy Spirit came to send them out. So what we see in these verses then are four things about God's people in those very early days that meant they were ready for reaching out for mission. And we're going to think briefly about the implications for each of these things for us. So if you've got the uh, notice sheet on the back, you'll see the the outline if if that's helpful. We'll put uh, the points on the screen as well. The first of all, the first thing we need to see, the people of God ready for mission were prayerful. So looking particularly at those verses 12 to 14. 
They were prayerful. Verse 12, they return to Jerusalem. They go together, the 11 of them, to a room. And we should probably observe, this is not a party. It's a work meeting. Because verse 14, what do they do? They pray. And actually, this is a bit of a thing in the, in the book of Acts. At the, at the key moments, when you see something of that theme, verse, uh, verse 8 being fulfilled as the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What you find at each of these key moments is God's people praying. So verse 24, later in the passage, the substitute apostle is chosen and they were praying. And then uh, just some other random examples. Chapter 8, the gospel goes to the Samaritans in Samaria, the enemies of God's people, and the gospel has gone to them. It's a big moment. The Holy Spirit comes on these new Samaritan believers and we're told... God's people were praying. Chapter 9, Saul, who, who will become the Apostle Paul, is converted from a background of anti-Christian terrorism. And we're told the believers were praying. Chapter 10, Cornelius, a, a Roman centurion, the first non-Jewish Christian, we're told he was praying and Peter was praying. Chapter 13, a big moment as Barnabas and Saul head off for their mission on their own. They prayed. So Luke is really keen for us to see at these key moments when things happen, what are God's people doing? They're praying. Now, in each case, we're not told what they prayed for. You know, we're not told that they prayed specifically for God to do something and then he did exactly what they asked. It's just, no, they, they were just praying. That's what they were doing. Now, I'm sure all the, the doctors here and others maybe as well will be able to tell, it, tell us Correlation is not causation. Do you know what I mean by that? Correlation is not causation. Two things that happen together don't automatically mean that one of them is causing the other. But it's a common kind of fallacy that we uh, fall into in everyday life. So, you know, here's an example. When ice cream sales increase, so do deaths from drowning, apparently. Now, of course, it is not the sale of ice creams that makes people drown. But it is actually, in that case, it's the summer weather, isn't it, that makes people both buy ice cream and visit the seaside. So there's something that we need to see here with the relationship between God's people praying and things happening. It's not that there is a very tight causation. That you can say, oh, look, look, they prayed this specific type of prayer, and if you pray this particular type of prayer, you can make God do stuff. It's that we're not given that kind of tight causation between these two things. And yet, and yet, whenever God acts, so often it coincides with his people praying. Now, why might that be? Well, prayer, what is prayer? Prayer is saying... Lord, we need to depend on you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. As God's people, that's a prayer from, from the second book of Chronicles. Prayer is saying, we're not in charge, but God is. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, actually many people struggle to understand what prayer is really for. And it's almost as if Luke is saying, well, the, actually, do you know, the issue is not so much, you know, have you got the right words? Are you praying for the right things? I mean, we do need to think about what we pray for. That's important. 
But Luke is not really flagging that up here. He's just saying over and over again, look, God's people are people who pray. And when they get together, they pray. They always have been, right from the start. They pray together, they pray by themselves. So let's be people who pray. If we're stuck, we pray the, the Lord's Prayer. That's what Jesus said, you know, when you pray, pray this. Pray our Father. And on it goes. Pray for God to be glorified. Pray for his will to be done in the circumstances of our lives. See, this is reminding us we're not ready to reach out to the world around us until we're people of prayer. It doesn't need to be dramatic or flashy or have all the right theological words and eloquence. It isn't a way of twisting God's arm to get what we want, but it's saying, we don't know what to do. We trust you, Lord. So we're doing all this stuff in small groups, thinking about how to reach out this term. We've got to be people of prayer, first of all. And then we wait and see what God will do. Then secondly, what were they marked by? Well, the people of God ready for mission were biblical. In other words, they were driven by God's word. That's where they went. They went to the Bible to see what they should be doing next. That was their starting point. So they face this question. As they look around the room, there's a lot of people in the room. It's got 120 people in it, we're told. Big room. But only 11 of them were part of Jesus' original group of 12 disciples because Judas has gone. And so they face this question. Okay, given that that's the case, what do, we, what do we make of this? Is this something we need to hush up? Has God's plan gone wrong somewhere? Did Jesus get caught out unawares by Judas's treachery? Is this a time for plan B measures, for example? And so as they, they pray, they search the scriptures. They seek to be people driven by what God has already said in his words. Now, it's striking, they've been promised the Holy Spirit will come, and so now they look at what the Holy Spirit has already said. Verse 16. That is what Christians believe the Bible is. Not merely a human document, but words breathed out by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of people like King David. Can you see that in verse 16? I remember as a 17-year-old when I first realised that this book, this Bible... Which actually, there's many books, but you know, you see it as one book, and I, I sort of vaguely knew about it through school and things, but I hadn't been brought up going to church, and I thought of it as a kind of religious curiosity, nothing more. And then I realised Christians that I that I met actually believed this is God speaking to us. This is the Holy Spirit's word to us, and that that blew my mind. That it never even occurred to me that that might be a thing. And I realised, well, this is something I, I need to take seriously. That's the claim. This is something I need to take seriously and work out for myself if, if that's right, if I could believe it. And so that's what I did. Well, P Peter understood that all that had happened had been foretold in the part of the Bible that they already had at that point, which is what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. At the end of Luke, Jesus shows his followers how all of his sufferings and death have been foretold in the Old Testament law and prophets and writings, he says. And now Peter points out that the same is true when it comes to Judas's betrayal of Jesus. When Judas served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. So a few verses on, he quotes the Psalms. Verse 20. He says, look, we, we, if we've read our Bibles, he's saying we know about this. Judas 
rejecting Jesus isn't a massive surprise once we go back and read what the, what the Old Testament actually says. So do you see what's going on at this crucial turning point? God's people understand they're part of the same big one story of God's people that began right back at the beginning in Genesis. <clears throat> Nothing's changed. God's plan to save the world through a people has not failed. Now yes, Judas is responsible for what he did, but it was all part of the plan from the start. Nothing takes God by surprise. And if God's people could be confident at that point that what was happening to them was part of God's plan, well, the same then is true for us today, isn't it? See, the church in the 21st century in London doesn't have some different task from the one God's people began with 2,000 years ago. We take our place in the same story, as it were, the same one big plan that began at the beginning of the Bible. Now, we don't, we don't necessarily have the same roles to play, but we have the same mission. We're not the foundation of the building. You know, we're, we're, we're just a tiny little feature, many floors up the building, with who knows how many more floors to go. But we're still involved in this same plan to see the gospel, the good news about Jesus, go to the ends of the earth. And so if we want to be part of this movement that the apostles began 2,000 years ago, we need to be people who are driven by the same scripture. And for us today, we also have what we call the New Testament, written by apostles like Peter, and then by Paul, who we're going to meet later in the book of Acts, and then by others as well. But for all, again, spoken through them by the Holy Spirit. So, before we're ready to reach out, we need to be prayerful, we need to be biblical, driven by the Bible. And then, thirdly, we need to be honest. The people of God ready for mission were honest. Verses 17 to 19. <clears throat> These verses, verses 17 to 19, if you look, they could be seen as a great embarrassment to God's people. Why does Luke choose to include in his account this these details of Judas's betrayal, how he led the guards to Jesus, how he then took his own life in a dramatic and horrible way, and the process by which he was replaced. It's a bit odd. Why include this? This guy, Matthias, that they end up choosing, well, actually, he's never spoken of again. So it's not as if we kind of need to understand where he came from in order to understand his role later on. Why include this slightly embarrassing episode? You know, where they have to recall again, verse 17. He was, he was one of our number. He, he shared in our ministry. You know, think what that means. Judas was one of the trusted twelve. He was one of the inner circle that people would have longed to be part of. And his actions allowed the Romans to find Jesus and arrest him. So why not just hush it up? Why bring it into public view? You, you, you would think that this small, vulnerable group of 120 people had nothing to gain by being honest about the failure that had taken place among them. It's human nature to keep this kind of moral failure quiet. Don't explain, don't apologise, brave the storm, move on, hope no one notices or gets bored of complaining. That is human nature, isn't it? But 2,000 years ago... 
This was an even weirder thing to do, actually, to be honest about weakness and failure. You know, we, we, we're aware of this this week, aren't we, with all that's flying around in the news, accusations of hypocrisy and, and everything else. One rule for them, another for everyone else. Well, actually, in the ancient world, you know, at the time when this is written, people would have said, well, of course it's one rule for, for them and another for everyone else. I mean, what else does it mean to rule? That is the kind of thing people would have thought on the basis of looking at, you know, the, the, the Roman Empire and how they did things. So, you know, in that kind of mindset, well, it's crazy to admit weakness and wrongdoing unless you're absolutely forced to do so. But they don't hang around waiting for an inquiry, for example, to confirm it. They are up front. This was a failure and it needs to be put right. This is massively countercultural. Now, it's not just politicians who don't do this very often. Actually, Christians, if we're honest, we can be exactly the same. It's important that we don't just sort of, you know, waggle our fingers at others. See, both, you know, corporately, when we think of responses to cases of abuse that have taken place in the wider church, you know, and people have started to say things like, well, for the sake of the gospel, we need to keep things quiet. Because imagine the damage it would do to the church if people found out what has really been going on. That kind of thing. You know, the reputational damage would be huge, people say. And actually, that's just as damaging, isn't it? But actually then, in other ways, maybe in smaller ways, we can be like that individually as well. You know, I actually, I choose not to be honest about my sin, either with God or with other Christians as appropriate. I worry what they will think of me. I don't want to suffer loss of face. So again, I hush things up. Keep things quiet. Only admit failure and wrongdoing if pushed and if absolutely necessary. Only when pushed by an inquiry, as it were. But neither the church nor any individual Christian is ever better served by cover-ups. And that is because that is the dynamic of the gospel, isn't it? We, we've, we've seen that in, this, in our service so far. What do we do? We confess our sins because that is the means by which we receive God's forgiveness. That is what God is offering to us. And that is good news. Isn't it good news that he's offering us that? But if we won't admit that we need it, then we need to remember those words that Jesus said. I've not, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He's come for sinners. So we need to start by admitting that that is who we are, both individually and then corporately when that is needed. And even more than that, we need to remember at the heart of Christian faith is a God who isn't thrown off course by our sin and rebellion against him. He doesn't have to sort of go to plan B when even the worst act of evil in human history happens, when his own son is betrayed and murdered. It's the greatest act of evil, but even that is incorporated into this extraordinary plan to save the world. And used for his glory. Now we're going to see more of that in chapter 2 as Peter 
um, proclaims that even more clearly in his speech on the day of Pentecost. But that is the reason then that the Bible tells Christians to confess their sins to one another. We can be honest with one another because we've already been accepted by Jesus. So we have nothing to fear. We can say to another Christian, have we done this recently in any way? You know, we could say, look, I'm really struggling with anger or pride or lust or envy or greed. You know, right now in some specific way, that is what is I, I'm struggling with. And we can say that because we know that the person we're talking to is also a sinner and will also be struggling with sin in, in, in ways which may be similar or different, but they will be struggling because we are, if we're Christians, we are saved sinners. And we can say that because we know we both have a great saviour. Do you see? They weren't ready for mission until they had put the oxygen mask on themselves and received again the good news of forgiveness that meant they could be honest about what had taken place among them as God's people. Well, we need to be the same. Fourthly and finally then, the people of God ready for mission were Jesus-centred from the final verses. They discern from Scripture then that it's necessary to find a replacement for Judas to complete the twelve. That the, the twelve apostles are the foundation of the church. What, what makes them the foundation is there in, in verses 21 and 22. You see, they were with Jesus throughout his ministry and they witnessed his resurrection from the dead. So it's not because Judas has died that he needs replacing and then therefore you have to keep on replacing them whenever they die. That's not the point. The point is that he's turned his back on this particular, unique, one-off ministry of being the ones who were there with Jesus throughout and able to speak then and record and proclaim what Jesus did in his life and his death and his resurrection. And actually for us today, it is absolutely vital that we know these people existed and are trustworthy. Do you see? Because our, we don't have Jesus in person, in physical form, here in front of us to meet. But we do have the apostles' testimony about Jesus. And as Jesus says to Thomas at the end of John's Gospel, you have believed because you see me, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And we can do that on the basis of what the, the apostles then wrote for us in what we call the New Testament. So it's absolutely vital that we understand that such people were carefully chosen. That they had been with Jesus. They haven't just kind of made it up through, through hearsay. The foundation of this is the 12 who were with him and saw exactly what he was like and were able to proclaim him to the world. And that gives us confidence then in our family history. And they model then what it means to trust Jesus. Do you notice this? Do you notice how they speak to him? You know, he's literally, he's just gone. He's just gone. He's just ascended into heaven. And verse 24 they're talking to him. Do you see that? As if he's kind of there. You know, they're praying. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Who are they talking to? They're talking to Jesus. Who's that? The one who ascended to heaven. Well, he's still there. 
And so we can talk to him too in that way, can't we? It's exactly the same. So they talk to him, they pray, and they say, show us which of these two you've chosen. Now we need to remember again, this is description, not prescription. And, and they, they cast lots, which is a way of, uh, it's a sort of Old Testament form of guidance. Um, and it was appropriate. Before the Holy Spirit had come, there were ways of understanding what God wanted you to do. But those kind of things passed away when the Holy Spirit came as he's about to do. So this is not here to kind of give us a way of you know, choosing leaders or something like that. It's here to describe what they did as they prayerfully ensured that the 12 were complete. But can you see that? What this is showing to us is that before we can think about reaching out and making Jesus known, before we can offer this oxygen mask to others, we need to see this is where it all started, with a group that realised that they needed to be prayerful, Bible-driven, honest about failure and weakness, and centred on proclaiming Jesus, who had died and risen from the dead. That was what their ministry was about. That was the oxygen that they needed for themselves, and that is the oxygen that we need before we can share with the world. So let's be those people marked by that prayer, by that commitment to the scriptures, by that commitment to honesty about who we are and what's happened in our lives and by a commitment to proclaiming the Jesus who died and rose from the dead as we're involved in that ministry today. Let's pray now. Father God, we so easily forget to go back to basics in our walk with you. We long to see a world transformed by Jesus, by the good news about him. Please would you start by transforming us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.